Mahia na mahi ke tamarikiana. Work energetically while young. Tēnā koutou i te iwi, whakapini mai whakatata mai ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahikā. Ko marae rakraku tēnei. Welcome to Te Ahikā, your weekly dose of all things Māori, here on Radio New Zealand National. Te Arawa and Ngātiawa iwi were devastated with the sudden violent death of Hawea Virko last Saturday night. The 36-year-old principal of Te Kurakaupapa Māori o Rotuiti died after a night out in Whakatane, leaving behind six kids in a school now in need of a principal. And it seems his death happened at the hand of another Māori man. And according to Bob Northover of Men for Change, a group advocating non-violent Māori men, it's a lose-lose situation for all parties. Because at the end of the day, the victims in violence are everybody that's involved. Because if it's dad that's heading out, he gets locked up. He's a victim because he cannot see his children and his partner again. And it's the children and the partners that become victims. Everybody and the families on both sides become victims as well. Bob Northover, he'll be up in a few minutes. Dr Maria Barge has always shown an interest in the activities of Indigenous peoples and their relationships with each other and non-Indigenous peoples. She's got a doctorate, written countless papers and numerous visits to Indigenous nations to prove it. Recently, she returned from a trip to Canada where she was investigating the ways Indigenous nations were harnessing natural resources such as the wind for their benefit. A um, whole lot of nations getting involved in the green technologies, um, sustainable, renewable energies, um, as well as these others <laughs> who, because uh, what they have available on their reserves may not be wind um, or waterways um, where you can set up renewable energy projects. They have oil and gas, and so that's something that they've pursued. So I wanted to see why and what they think about it and um the kinds of reasons that they give for getting involved in it. Dr Maria Barge, we'll hear from her a little later. So what about on a grassroots level? On a recent visit to Te Tairawhiti, the east coast of the North Island, I sat in with some students doing what they can to make their lives sustainable, that is, managing what's around them to live, which ranges from planting their own veggies to protesting against the local council. That's what's lined up for you in the next 50 minutes, so stay locked in. I'm Maraia Rakuraku, and this is Te Ahika. First up, when a Māori man, Hawea Virko, died last weekend in what appears to be an assault by another Māori man, Isaiah Tai, media footage showed the tension between the two families meeting outside the courtroom and you couldn't help but feel an overwhelming sense of grief for both families now locked into a certain relationship with each other, of victim and perpetrator. And that's a relationship Bob Northover knows well, as a counsellor for Men for Change, an organisation in Gisborne that focuses on anger management counselling for men. I spoke with him a few months ago, and he told me how generational violence can be devastating. In the work that you do for Men for Change, yes. are you finding that the that Māori men in particular 
I mean, are things changing for them? Are they addressing the behaviours of violence and, you know, being the puppers and the, yeah. the tāne that you want them to be? Yeah, well, I always challenge our men on, um, or the, the people that come through our doors, on who's following behind them. And I always ask the question, have you got a son? I say, yes. And I said, would you like him in 10 years' time to be in the store? Or would you like him in 10 years' time being a dad that everybody looks up to? That's how I ask him. And I said, you make that choice. And I said, the same, have you got a daughter? Yes. Would you like her to have a male partner exactly like you? And, and that has some thinking. Because I guess you're finding that uh, the impact of the Second World War, yes, that often the violence and often when the soldiers returned and they weren't able to talk about what that what had happened to them overseas, yes, that a lot of violence ended up erupting in homes around that period, didn't they? Yes. And then do you also find that uh, the behaviours end up being generational? Yes, it, it gets passed on from from person to person, whether it's the dad or the mum. It gets passed on because that's all they've been taught, how to deal with conflict. If there's something happening to them and if they react, the only way they know how to react is to hit out, lash out or speak out in a way that hurts people. That's all they know and, uh, and our job is to get them look, look at other alternatives. So what are the alternatives, Bob? Go for a walk. That's the easiest alternative but the hardest thing to do is go for a walk. When you're feeling like you want to hit or bang something, go for a walk. Are you saying, like, step away from the situation? Yes, right away from the situation. Gosh, Bob, some people might be walking, like, all day. Well, that's good if they have to do that, because they're not hurting anybody and themselves. Because at the end of the day, the victims in violence are everybody that's involved. Because if it's dad that's hitting out, he's get locked up. He's a victim because he cannot see his children and his partner again, and it's the children and the partners that become victims. Everybody and the families on both sides become victims as well. So, I mean, Bob, doesn't it take, like, a degree of honesty to realise, you know, you've got a bit of an issue, if it be with violence, whether that's language or physical violence, to actually end up going to Men for Change? Yes, and at the beginning, the, the, the person that comes through our door, and, by the way, we predominantly deal with male only from 17 upwards, it's uh, the person coming through the door has to want to be there not to be sent there. So that's that's a struggle sometimes. So while you're dealing with men that are aged from 17 up, I mean, do you tend to get younger men coming in or men in their 30s, 40s? Yes, we get them at all ages. We've sometimes uh, ring, mums ringing up and say, got a boy with a behaviour problem, can you just have a chat? And we never turn anybody away. Now, if we could just focus on Māori men. Yes. Are there things within... Tikana Māori that you think assists how Māori men can respond to certain situations? Well, it depends on the person itself. You know, some of our Māori men, unfortunately, do not understand our language. You mean as in te reo Māori? As in te reo, as, as in a lot of the structures because of um, born in the state where the Māori was not spoken. So, that, you know, so that's why we um, deal with both sides of it. So what about in terms of, do you find yourself having to deal with what they may think is tikana Māori that actually isn't? Ah, uh, yes. So what would be an example of that? 
Well, you know, some of them think that um, that's what the Māoris used to do. Like? Like heads out. Like hitting your kids? Uh, hitting your children and uh, see, calling our children kids is another one that we get them to look at. So I always ask the question, what is a kid? And they think about it and I says, well, I don't think my boy is going to be called a baby goat. And it's all of those things that we challenge them on or how they, how they address their children and their partners. So like if they call their, their partner Mrs? Yeah. Or cook? Yeah, or cook. So you're challenging them about the language they're using as well as the, the behaviour that yeah. they end up displaying? Yeah. Like you used at the beginning, it's the language as well as the behaviour that we get them to look at and how they use the language and where they use it and when do they use it. So, I mean, how challenging is that? It's bloody challenging. In what way? These uh, gentlemen, this is all they know. They do not know anything else, you know, because that's how they've been taught to speak to people from their upbringing. And do you get Māori men who um, think that it challenges their masculinity? Uh, some do, yes. But then after, after a while, some of them realise, yes, um, they need to have a look at themselves. But, yes, yeah, some of them are, and some of them will never change because of that. So what would be an example of somebody who has changed? Uh, when they accept the fact that they need to do a lot more work on themselves and they just keep coming back and asking the same questions until they get it right. And how does your organisation support them in doing that? Well, we have a phone, 24 phone number. We have cell phones that they can talk to each, the three of us work here and we have a cell phone number for each different one of them. There's also we offer an answer machine that we will ring them as soon as we can when we, when we get the message. So have you ever found that you've had to challenge somebody physically? Uh, no. We do not uh, physically challenge them. We just uh, challenge them in their behaviour. If they're going to um, get physically upset, I says, bro, all I've got to do is pick a phone up and ring the police and I don't want to do that. What led you into the into this mahi men for change? Well, it, was ha- it just happened that I uh, was I was in Wellington for twenty years, upper hut I lived in, and uh, my son was up here after his twenty first birthday, and he I just he said I'll come up and did it. And he said, Dad, I'm lonely because I was living on my own. I said, Well, I'll come up. And a couple of weeks after I got up here, the job was in the paper, and Paratinengata was at the other end. He says, mm-hmm. well, can you start? And I says, tomorrow if you want me. And that's how I got into this job. Like I said, 1993, I've been here since then. Must be good though, eh? Because you've, you've gone back home. Yeah, yeah, and I'm bloody enjoying, you know, I still enjoy what I'm doing because there's still a lot of, I can give. And I still have a goal. And the goal is to hopefully make it safe for everybody, male, female, you know, to walk the streets, to be able to do things without having to dodge, having to fight or anything. I mean, you must, you must encounter a lot of men in tears. I do. There's a lot of men coming in and says, oh, my, my wife's just fucking hit me and all of this, and then he shows things. I just ring the cops up and get him to come over. What do you do that for? I says, bro, you, if, if it was you that did it to her, you'd be locked up, and I want the same for her. Oh, so you also get the other side, men yeah. who... Get bashed. And how do they respond to... I mean, that's something that's, you know, not really talked about much. No, it's not. Because uh, the men, they know too whakamau about talking, about getting bashed. But, you know, they say, well, bro, this and this. I say, hang on a minute. And I ring the cops up and the cops come over and I say, charge it. And they do. 
You know, and, and sometimes the cops used to laugh because uh, once upon a time one bloke was coming to me and said, man, I'm getting hit all the time. So I said, go and see the cops. And he rang me one day and said, cops are just laughing, bro, calling me a wuss. So I went and saw their boss, the police boss, and I said, hey, this is what's happening. Why has he been laughed at? And why has she not been sorted out and helped out? They still want this relationship to work, so we've got to do something about it. And has the uh, attitude changed? Up here it has. Trust me, it has. If I ring up and say what's happening, they, they let me know because of the fact that it is violence. And we've got to stop all violence, not just the male assault female. We've got to stop the female against male, you know, against our children, all of those. We have to stop all violence. Do you find that men tend to talk to men? Yes. Rather than men talking to women? Yes. That's, that, that's why it's a men's only thing. We do not deal with women with violence because we don't know how a woman, well, I know how my wife works, but we don't know how women work, eh? So that women should be walking, talking to women like you. You've done a little bit of this, Mahi. You should be in there dealing with women. And what about um, Māori men? They, Do they? they? Yeah, they have a struggle. Once upon a time, um, in, in this organisation, we had two psychologists. But the trouble with that is uh, their words were too big for some of our Māori men. Right. Hey, you know, big words, no... no um, no, no telling them what it meant. So, Bob, does that mean that you're only dealing with a particular class of Māori men? Yeah, we, we do deal with all of them. So you're dealing with professionals, professionals right down through to... Right down through to ones that cannot read or write. Right. I, you know, it's, it's everybody. Because that's another stereotype, isn't it? Yes. That violence only ever occurs in working classes. Yes. And it's not. You know, you've got professional men coming in and, you know, we say hello. But being such a you know a reasonably small community, Gisborne. Yep. I mean, what would really prompt um, someone who's known in the community to go to your organisation? Because of who he is and how small our community is. Because everything that's family violent in in, in Gisborne that gets reported, I get to see it, and I send out a letter, uh, you know, saying that we've been. Uh, the police have encouraged us to get hold of you to see if you will want to just see if you will join our program, and that's all of those things. Just a little letter like that, and that you know, um, like I said, every um, Wednesday I've just come back from a police station, and we have what we call a team management meeting about family violence in, in during the week, and that's part of my job is to go to those things and pick up the cases that we need, or not that we need that somebody needs something, and we just send out program structure and let them know that we're here, where to be found and how to be found. Is that, kind of, is that successful? That In that some approach? ways, yes, you know, it lets them know that we're there. We just say, hey, this is where we are. You know, and then some of them are fairly, you know, we get some older gentlemen who says, I should have had you long ago. And I says, yep. But that's then. Let's start now. He mihi aroha ki te morehu a hawea vukau. Just as rural-based Māori were running away from the cows and flocking to the cities in the 1960s right through to the 1980s in search of better jobs, better housing and overall better life, two generations later it's economics that again are reversing that trend. Māori are returning to their papakainga, or 
home villages. And not only that, Māori are taken to the ways of the old people with basic things such as gardening, food preservation and water conservation. In Taira Fiti around Tokomaru Bay and Tolog Bay on the east coast of the North Island, the Polytechnic is investing in sustainability. Well, that's how it was described to me, by running a horticulture course. And the course is attracting students from around the region, committed to organics and basically putting into use all the skills they grew up with but had neglected. I spent an enjoyable afternoon getting to know them and what they're all about. Ko Kiribiri, uh, I'm with the Tauraafiti Organics Incorporated from Gisborne, and I'm up here to. I was up here at Tokamaru to speak with Saraya students and uh, put forward a sustainable mentoring project that has been put forward by the. Tairawhiri Organics Incorporated and the MAF. My name is Silanenia. I'm a student on Soraya's um, horticulture course in Tokamara Bay. Silanenia. Do you want to say what your full name is or do you I just I call it Silanenia? Okay. Oh, is that your whole name? Yeah, yeah. my first name is Sila. Sila. Nina. Oh, <laughs> 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 All right, Sila, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, Sila. <laughs> um, ko Soraya Pohatu Taku Ingwa no Muruwai. Um, I work for Taira Fiti Polytech. I'm the tutor at Tukamaru Bay campus and I teach regional horticulture. Kia ora, ko Miri Taku Ingwa. Tupuya Springs. I'm on the horticulture course at the Tokumaru Bay Polytech. Kia ora, uh, Jim Morris, Nukurotoria, uh, um, tutor for the agriculture course. Kia ora, Koros, Tuhura Taku Ingo. Um, I'm a student on the Tarapiti Polytech uh, horticulture course at Tokumaru Bay. Kia ora, my name is Darlene uh, Takahainga and I am a student on uh, Tairawhiti Polytechnic and I am with Agriculture. Kia ora, I'm Lillian Gray, ko titirangi tamanga, ko uawa te awa and I do um, camera, that's my business, Lil's camera. Kia ora, ko keri haraki. No poi hakina haho, farming in a small way out the back of Tapuya in the high country. Oh, that wasn't too bad. Eh? Yeah, we can all relax, right? <laughs> what does sustainability mean to you? From a politics perspective, the idea was that we would run a regional horticulture course here in Tukumaru Bay. It's a level two, so it's an introduction course. And the idea is, is we've gone away from the old ways in which polytechs used to run and you'd germinate plants at the polytech and they'd stay there. We're now teaching horticulture in people's own homes. And the idea is that they're, they're sustainable within their own home, that they have a food source all year round. So we look at things like veggie gardens, orchards, berries, um, composting, worm farming, but all based in their own homes. So we teach, we're trying to teach people how to be 
sustainable and utilise their whenua more. So I'm looking at the room, looking around at all of you, and one thing I am noticing is that there are no tāne here. Is that because they're just not here, or there are no tāne on this course? No, it's just because they're not here today. We actually, on each course, this is the fourth course that I've run in Tukamaru Bay, in the horticulture side, and every course we've had three to four males on our courses, so there isn't a shortage of men. <coughs> Why is that? Um, today, the guy, one of the guys who's usually in my course, he's also the ambulance driver <laughs> in Victoria, <laughs> and Thursdays his day. <laughs> but I mean, do you find that it's mainly wahine that come to these courses? Um, yes, I do. I find it it is wahine that come to most of these courses, and I believe I was brought up with a lot of women working in my gardens back home in Uwawa more than men. But it's not necessarily a gender thing, eh? Men can no, garden as well no, as women. Now, is it also because most of the men tend to work outside of um, outside of here? I mean, what's the population here? Would, and are you talking in Tukumaru? The figures would be five, five, five hundred and fifty people. So, if you were to split that up in terms of gender, would it be fifty-fifty, male, female? No, no, be a more female. Yeah. Yeah, there would yeah, be, be more yeah. female. And what about age-wise? Because when I look around the room here, I mean, everybody. Okay. <laughs> Let me think about how I should say that. <laughs> okay. Well, everybody ain't twenty. <laughs> <laughs> so what about in terms of age? I mean, I come from a little place where either it's Komatua who live there, teenagers, everyone between the like the 30 to about the 50 age group, gone. No, I, I think there's still a good um, middle age group within Tukamaru Bay. My students in the class, we've got a good range. We've got some really young ones who are in their early 20s. Um, and then we've got my age group, and then we've got some older, more mature students as well. Do people tend to stay here, like you go to school here, you stay here with your families, you bring up your kids, you know, you stay here from <coughs> birth to death, or do they tend to leave, go to the city? Well, they, they tend to travel while they're young and more or less come back and settle down when their 30s, late 20s and 30s, they come Bring back the babies back. Settle down, yes. So what kind of impact does that have on the community? What kind of impact that has on the community is you're the one who ends up going to the school and, um, you know, like I'm a grandparent as well, and you're the one who's actually running shop days, uh, taxi driving children to different sports events and, you know, um, fundraising um, and what we're doing, catering and, yeah, we tend to do that more. Tend to do, end up doing everything? To come on a course like this, you have to be pretty motivated. And is it usually the same people that end up, that you see around your community doing these things? Because I'm, I'm just thinking about it in, in terms of our perspective, right? The people that come to... That go to courses tend to, you know, it tends to be the uncles and aunties who do everything, you know. 
It depends on the course as well. I mean, if it's uh, within school hours, because most of us have to go home to children, so we wouldn't want to be at a course that's past three o'clock. You know, so most of it, uh, it's the times that are convenient for us to come to course and then go home and live our other lives as parents, grandparents. And the course has that flexibility? It has that flexibility. But the course also is not just um, set up for people in Tukamari Bay. In my class, I've got students, Mary and Rose um, and Anna, who's not here today. They're from Tapuya. Um, T. Hay, Michelle and Ke- Keith, they're from Iohungia Station. And I had one past Waipero Bay, just about at Rua, who would attend this course. And then I've got one over Busby's Hill that attends this course. And then the rest are made up of people from Tukumaru Bay. So it's not just focused on people who live here in Tukumaru Bay. It's opened up wider um, to the wider communities. But it is about um, students making a commitment to travel because we don't pick them up. So my students tend to carpool. You know, and um, so they're taking care of their carbon footprints <laughs> by sharing one vehicle instead of each of them coming on their individual walkers. So, you know, it's about thinking wiser, travelling wiser. Yeah. So why is it that we've kind of lost touch with the stuff that our grandparents are doing in terms of planting and living that sustainable that sustainable life, you know, because my nanny used to put seaweed on the garden, which she'd collect. She used to get the driftwood from the sea, which would then burn. You know, so that was only, you know, one generation ago. And my parents are still doing that too, but, you know, they were tending to work in the railways and work at Watties. So why is it that you think that, you know, that we, we almost have to relearn those skills now, eh? It is because people did go away to the cities, um, and it only takes one generation for that skill to be misplaced. It's not that people have forgotten. People can still remember having the big gardens and they say, oh, gardens, I remember when I was a kid. Oh, you know, day from daylight to dark, be out there in these huge gardens, couldn't see the end of the roads. I just, I don't think people have um, forgotten that skill. They just, yeah, need to be guided back to it. And it is because people went away to the city and that they did want something else. So how has this course then been facilitating your lot's um, reconnection up with gardening? It's done a lot for me, although... Lillian Gray. I'm from Miwawa and I believe it's done a lot for me. Um, I'm going into my 10th year of doing my kumara and I'm proud of what I'm doing and it's organic and um, I believe everyone can do it. If not, we need to um, teach our young ones out there and get them motivated into the gardens, um, you know, honour our whenua and look after our whenua. Kerry Beesey. I believe that what's happening in the system also is that as much as we see our people go from places like Tukumaru or, or even out of Gisborne City, to the great big metropolis, Auckland or Wellington, Christchurch, we are not being told the truth of how many are coming back out again and coming home. The figures have never really... You keep getting what is going from these areas, but what is coming back. And 
that 20 to 30 year old group is slowly coming back and as this recession or whatever you wish to call it bites in harder um, more people will come home and I believe that um, this is sustainable and that the more people are, that are taught to um, <clears throat> look at production for themselves to go back to the old ways um, and help themselves as well as the whanau this will get bigger and bigger. It's certainly going to get bigger. The whole organic system, and I'll use the word organics, um, is is on the rise in this country. And all we need to do is this being one of the opportunities for the people themselves to find their way back to eating good food and living good lives. Jim Morris. Uh, I've been farming for for years, since the uh, early 60s, uh, Went to Te farming school. Didn't realise the chemicals that we were using and how we were using them and all that. But it's been a big circle around now and, and sort of uh, made us realise all the stuff that we're eating off the shelves aren't necessarily the right stuff for, for people now. Especially when you see our, uh, our elderly people dying off with cancers and all these other things. Dying we, young, eh? Dying very young, you know, and, and a lot of them went fairly young. And, you know, after a while you start thinking about it and you've got to go right back around again and you went away, learned all the modern methods, saw it all, and now we're starting to realise, yeah, it starts at home. You've got to start... What the old people did in the old days, I think we just need to bring that all back again. So that's one of the reasons, is it preservatives that are that's in the kai that we get on the shelves now? Yeah, that's... Any other reasons why organics should be the thing that Māori should should get into? The long-term effect that we're actually doing to the whenua itself, we're actually contaminating the whenua by using all the chemicals and fertilisers and sprays on food so that they grow faster, bigger... So, I mean, but a little a little bit of spray for your little garden at the back of your kitchen isn't going to have an effect. But we're not, we're not looking at... Soraya Pohatsu. You need to look at the bigger picture. I mean, we all have to take um, look at our own carbon footprints and what how we leave this place and what our job is while we're here, you know. Um, but there's also the bigger picture of all the big cropping industries that happen and the chemicals that happen within those... Um, organisations and they're not benefiting the soil so once they leave that fennel and give it back to the people who they got it from it no, it no longer has any use to anybody else because it's so contaminated you know and that drips down into our our water systems under at the tables in the water that come out into our rivers that we in rural areas sometimes actually have to supply live on the rivers to fill up our water tanks to drink and then we're drinking that you know, so we have to look at the bigger picture in, um, in our environment. I think, like Jim says, you know, you start small and then you work your way out. If there's enough people out there, I mean, I'm all for organics, but um, at the same time, organics is not is something I practice in my own garden, but organics, if I went to the city or town, I can't afford their materials or their goods because they're out of my price range. Yeah, I and mean, I, $5 for a kg of... Kiwi fruit. I yeah. mean, that's out of a lot of Māori budget. Yeah, but if we can start practicing those good practices within our own gardens and build out from that, and then maybe we've got a bit more force later on with the rest of those other industries to say no more. This will not be the practice anymore. We need to look 
at better solutions rather than the practice that we currently have. I mean, because that's one thing that I don't understand is if organics are so good, why are they so dear? Because there's not enough growers out there. And also, you, to some degree, um, <clears throat> people see organics as a means to making a fortune, which is not correct. Kerry uh, BC. Organics is really what our ancestors did. It is what we were before 1960 arrived. And uh, the change is that... Maybe before 1769. <laughs> long before 1769. <laughs> Maybe um, before 1642. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, these things have been with us at all times and things have drawn us away from where we live. But organics, once people start to eat their own food that they've grown in their own, on their own fennel and see and see the way it grows and how it's done and use the older ways of growing and then the taste, um, it's hard to go back. And you're right, when you go to the city, food costs a fortune. So you, you, but you can, if you've got the basic seed growing in your mind from your, uh, where you came from, you can still grow X percentage of good kai in, in a city, in, in the biggest cities in the world still grow food at, most people don't know what's going on. So that organics is is the health of a nation. It is. If you've got sick food, you've got sick people. Uh, you can buy in places like Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch in, in, in organic shops uh, food that'll be two fifty, three fifty, four fifty dollars uh, above what you'd buy, say, in yep. Gisborne. And, of course, the, the, the excuse is that it's uh, the cost of getting it there but I still say that there's a, there's another person in there that's causing that, and it's trendy to be yeah. organic. But it isn't trendy because your um, grandfather was uh, was organic, yeah. and um, do you see your grandfather as organic? Uh, as sorry, as as a uh, as a trendy organic person? No, he was who he naturally was. Yeah. And I think that we all are naturally organic. And given the opportunities, like going back to, if you're forced to live in a city, I don't know the reasons why, uh, such as yourself, went to live in Wellington. But if you... you <laughs> why could, else? You could no have... money in Waimana. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> no jobs there. <laughs> but it, it, at the same time, what you learnt from your uh, grandparents or, or whoever it was, it was showing you a bit of gardening yeah, at the time. Yeah, my grandparents and parents. Then wherever you live in Wellington, I mean, not everybody lives in... Um, what is it, Taranaki Street or one of those? <laughs> Not everybody's there. You know, there are some places with grass and, and, and earth down in Wellington. And so that you could, and you take that skill with you. I do not believe that no matter who you are, that you need to lose your roots by moving from where you are. You, it's not a good enough excuse for me. And part of your roots is the food that you were taught yeah. to grow as a child. And it takes that because a part of your soul goes with you to that place yeah. and you create from there. And the next generation of people may not be born here, wherever it is that you're right here, be Tukumaru, but they still have a part of Tukumaru in their, in their body in what they were taught. So uh, organics, natural production of food without chemicals, is important for the people of this country in all ways. Okay, so what about, I mean, that's a kai thing. What about water? 
But if water is, a, water is an issue, and um, or should I say good quality water is an issue in major cities and areas away from the natural surroundings that we're in here. But it shouldn't be an issue of Wainui, should it? I mean, you can still get water from the, from the bucket. Hills. <laughs> you mean from out of the ground or, 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 or from or tanks? Yeah, like rainwater. Oh yes, it is. But but then, how many tanks can you have? I mean, you know, to that's one of the things that things councils and other bodies have got to look at. In a lot of places in New Zealand, that water is precious product, and and the way to treat it. I mean, we we treat our water very badly, right from the top end of our systems. You know, whether you're discussing councils or, or, or government. They, they treat the water very badly and it's a life force that doesn't need to be treated like that. And so therefore places like Wainui struggle with their water. They, as, as it said, they, a lot of that water is either tank water, there is, there is some get water coming through, but the quality of the water that goes back into the earth in some areas leaves a lot to be desired. In Tokumaru Bay, people suffer from water shortage. Yeah. Every summer, you see, you go up this Blimbin Valley here and you see people parked up, filling up their tanks from the stream mm -hmm. to take home. <coughs> or they're going up there to have their baths. Mm. Um, while we're talking about water, there's been some iwi-commissioned scientific studies done on our local watersheds. Um, and it's by reputable scientists who've told us that the Waipu River has more sediment than the Mississippi for such a small river that is the main river of Ngāchipurau. Mm. It's terribly degraded, and all our watersheds have to be reconstituted and looked after to bring our water quality back. Do they know what's causing back. that? Um, originally farm clearance... Mm. Oh, plus, um, the natural geology of the region is very unstable. But once the trees were gone, that just accelerated the degradation quite a lot. Pine forestry is going to accelerate that to us again? And, you know, on the coast, especially on the coast, what's going to happen when that big felling starts? They, they're claiming it's coming in the next few years. Is that going to create the river to be even more... Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of farmers have, have since the plant, uh, forestry has been planted, they said quite a bit more ground is moving now. It's all surfing, surf growing uh, wood. Eh? It's on top. It's putting more weight on, and and uh, there's not a very good balance too with uh, with all the pine needles and everything. And health wise, it's it's shocking for. You find a lot more people getting uh, allergies. allergies and all that now that we we never used to. <coughs> yeah, so it's but uh, the damage is being done out at sea. That's where we sort of got to look at. You know, like um, all our kai out there after bowler. Uh, I, I did what a trip. year was that again? Yeah, uh, nineteen eighty-eight. I I did a trip after bowler to the mouth. And I just couldn't get over the destruction and the smell of all our kai wrapped up in all the branches and everything rotting, rotting with the crayfish, the powers, everything. So and how, then, we're, we're in Tokumaru Bay at the moment. How far away in terms of kais is the Waiapu mouth? 
The mouth would mesh. Is it about a, a good hour's drive from here? Mm. Hour's drive. About an hour's drive. Yeah, right through to the mouth. Half an hour to Rotoria and it's further down to Rangitukia. And it's, uh, it's they, they, they're doing a lot now to try and turn the water because it's actually heading towards Rotoria. They're actually from going under the Waipu Bridge. So by they, are you talking about the council? Yeah. We're getting a lot of young people coming through now that are wanting to plant trees and wanting to, you know, stop this moving, stop that moving, you know, like, and we've, uh, we're a good 50 years behind, really, in, in this. But you actually have to look at the history, find out what we've done wrong, and for our grandkids and whatnot, how to fix it, you know. how You've got to plant back to native, you know, all our gullies and everything, put, go back to the native to try and fix it all up. So with the Nasipuro settlement, I mean, is that likely to happen? Well, the, uh, it's a couple of the hui's we've done, they've, they're sort of talking along those lines now, and they're starting to look at the, f the damage that's been done done out there, out at sea, and, and knowing it's inland, but it's changing the thinking of, of some of the farmers. They're still hanging in there. So you know what I'm hearing, just talking to you guys this afternoon, is that there's an interconnectedness between everything, eh? Yeah? Yep. Very much so. Of course. The yes. water. Yes, of course, the water. The water, the land and the people, they're all yeah. interdependent. Yeah. And when things are wrong with one, it goes right through the whole lot. Yeah. And what are the um, what are the stats like up here in terms of health-wise for um, Nasipuro? Rough idea? Ooh, we've been ghost-busting all year. Jeez. Just about every month. <laughs> Not very good, unfortunately. Um, you'll find a lot of our people now are having the likes of, um, what is it, sugar diabetes, and uh, some of them even going blind, and um, liver problems, kidney problems, um, heart problems, high blood pressure, and all these other new diseases we never ever had when our grandparents never had. They've never had prostate cancer and cervical cancer and you know, those are all new. So yeah, it's um it's all affecting everybody's health. Oh very high rates of asthma with the tamariki. Mm -hmm. And not only with the tamariki, since the pine trees have become mature, every winter time they release all the pollen and it's like a smog. You go out there into that forest area and it's just this golden smog. All your puddles are covered in this, in this rash of goldy blooming dust. It's all over your vehicles when you get out of bed in the morning. And a lot of um, middle-aged... Oh, yeah, and a lot of middle-aged people are getting breathing difficulties late in life, late-onset asthma as well. And we put it down to all this, all this um, pine. Pine tree. And that's why I maintain that for the people, uh, organics will work. If we promote organics and organic food, and especially in this area, um, in the Tauraupiti, there's land that can be used and utilised, um, and there's work there on a small scale for a lot of people. It's just slow, quiet steps that have got to be taken to get there. And my position as the facilitator for Tairapiti Organics 
um, is based on, and that's one of the reasons why I came here today to talk with the students, Soraya students, on the sustainable uh, mentoring fund that's there to help people to look at if they wish to go to certifying the property they're on. It does not have to be 100 acres or 1,000. It could be one acre or less. Because often that's, um, that's kind of strung out as, you know, why we're going to close so dear, eh, as a certification. And sometimes it, it can be, but once you get established, and Lily would be able to explain that better than I can, that there's a person who is, um, knows that once you get going, that that cost isn't as bad as what everybody blames it to be uh, because you, you, you're growing in small amounts and each year you're making more money from what you're producing. It's not a matter of making a fortune. It's a matter of sustaining your whanau and that around you and sustaining the whenua because if you don't, it will not sustain you at the end of the day. And organics on this coast could probably be one... This coast here could probably produce enough food to help Auckland Wellington and help make the people free of eating what I would say garbage food. So Lillian, could you talk to me about the about your organic kumara? Yeah, like um I believe like um you don't have to be a millionaire millionaire like overnight. It takes time. I'm going into my tenth year and um, I started off like little and now I've gone a little bit more bigger and bigger and bigger, so I believe it can be done. How's the certification process? It's helped me a lot. Being certified will take me a, has taken me a long, long way. And um, What does now, it involve? Well, it involves me selling my um, product, and I'm proud to be selling my product. And um, the ticket does help. Being certified does help me. So there's a market day? Yeah, there's a market day, and it's about... Um, Two things really. One about bringing the community out and they can see what's taking place down here at the course. I mean, a lot of people in Tukumaru Bay know about the course and have done the course, and you see it when you drive around the community. There's a whole lot of people who now have Kai Gardens happening at their homes. Um, and it's just a fun way of everybody catching up with each other, and it's a way of promoting the course. So we sell plants and um, other people in the community can come down and have a table and sometimes you get people selling seafood chowder and fry bread and somebody else will sell um, kangawaru and different So is things. that every Saturday? No. Every couple of times um, through the year we um, have a... I love that. Coast speak for every now and then. <laughs> yeah, we have a market day. So we'll have this one and it's a really a way like... Um, my budget that I have for my course doesn't cater to the whole need of my projects like when we talk about sustainability and we look at fruit trees because it's only a 20 week course we don't actually get time to do grafting and that whole procedure that's you know the next course so we produce buy some of those in we buy fruit trees in so people have got fruit trees that they can harvest from and Kai Gardens and outside we've got tipu beds, our kumara tipu beds happening and we have cold frames going and we do Explain all Explain tipu beds, are they the little mounds where you put the kumara thing on top and then you go like yeah. that with your finger to press it down? No, um, that's where we put out there our beds to grow our kumara plants, so we lay them down and then we break the growth of them and that's our new plant, our new kumara plant. 
Now, I can also see on the board over here that there's a whole lot of seeds listed. Do you have a seed bank here? No, we don't, yeah. But is it likely that could be a future thing? Um, one thing that we're looking at with the Level 3 is um, heirloom fruit and seeds. So next year we'll start looking at what are some of the old trees, original trees from this area, and start collecting those seeds and look at more of the heirloom um, varieties rather than the newer, modern varieties of seeds. Tutor Soraya Pohatu, Wakiri Haraki, Kerry Beatty, and Jim Morris, with students from the horticulture and agriculture courses at Te Tairawhiti Polytechnic. Rose Tuhura, Darling Takahainga, Lillian Gray, Kerry Haraki, and Mary Odd. At our website, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. That's T E A H I K A. A. As to these photos, I took with a couple of them. Click through till you get to our photo gallery. I'm Maraya Rakaraku, and you're listening to Te Ahika. It's both surprising and heartening when Māori see what other Indigenous nations are doing to preserve their way of life by adapting modern technology, especially when you see something done oceans away that can be replicated here which was exactly what Dr Maria Barge found when she visited the provinces of British Columbia and Alberta in Canada three months ago. Well, I guess I got interested in it um, mostly because uh, the hapu that's near our hapu, Ngāti Kia and Ngāti Tuara, which are in Hororo, the hapu down the road, if you like, <laughs> um, are involved with the Tuarupaki Trust and they have their own geothermal power station. So some of our relations are connected down there. And their mission is to be a beacon of hope uh, in Aotearoa. <laughs> and they certainly are. You know, they have, they're the first group of hapu, anyway, that have their own power station generating energy, selling it into the national grid, that's really inspiring. Um, and so I'd been doing a lot of research previously on neoliberalism and, and corporate um, you know, activity and things like that, and which often uh, tends to get a little bit grim. But this was a really exciting um, kind of activity that Māori are involved in. And uh, so I started looking at that and being really interested in renewable energy and what activities Māori are getting into in terms of renewable energy. And there are some hapu and iwi that are investigating biodiesel plants, uh, wind farms uh, and uh, other or geothermal activity and all those kinds of things. Um, and as well as that, uh, I look, started looking around internationally and found that other nations, indigenous nations, are already down that track. Um, and so in Canada, there are a number of First Nations which have their own uh, mini or micro hydro dams in their in their own rivers, some that have wind turbines, uh, and they're kind of going down this track, which I thought was really exciting. In Alberta, uh, in Canada, there's also a whole lot of nations that are going down the non-renewable energy track, uh, which I discovered in the kind of... Uh, in, in the process. Um, they have their own oil companies and are actually drilling for oil on their own reserves. So that's a, a bit of a, a you know a contrast, if you like. A um, whole lot of nations getting involved in the green technologies, um, sustainable, renewable energies, um, as well as these others <laughs> who, because uh, what they have available on their reserves may not be wind 
um, or waterways um, where you can set up renewable energy projects. They have oil and gas, and so that's something that they've pursued. So I wanted to see why and what they think about it and um, the kinds of reasons that they give for getting in- involved in it. And what did you find? Did you see similarities there as well as...? Yeah, a lot of similarities. At the end of the day, most nations are doing it for the well-being of their people. Um, that is, at the end of the day, usually what they always say, what the vision or the mission of their uh, companies will be or their trusts that are pursuing these ventures. It's the well-being of their people. Um, they just have different resources available to them, so they're pursuing them and these things in different ways. Uh, so we visited the Sucker Creek uh, First Nation, which is north of Edmonton, and they actually do have some oil and gas on their land, and they also have forests, um, but they have made a conscious decision that they don't want to exploit um, those kinds of resources, and they're investigating uh, establishing a biodiesel plant on their land, um, which would employ people. So the biodiesel plant would use um, a lot of the waste that they have from farms around uh, in that area and mix it maybe with sewage. Uh, so you're using all these kind of waste products um, and turning it uh, into diesel, uh, into biodiesel, um, which can be used in um, machines and, and cars in different formulations. Um, so obviously with people, uh, companies looking for alternatives to oil, um, biodiesel is often picked up as, as one that's going to be um, booming in the next few years. So they were wanting to get in- involved in that. And that's using waste, uh, you know, f- for good. In <laughs> <laughs> uh, the examples you've mentioned, their whenua is actually in within their control. Yeah, their whenua is it's, it's a reserve, Sucker Creek um, Reserve. In fact, that's the location... Um, it's the place where the um, Treaty 8 was signed in um, 1899. So they have this quite a significant kind of location there as well. It's in their control. Um, they have their own health centre. They have their own housing. Um, it's their own reserve. That's where uh, their members live. I mean, they have a particular jurisdiction, um, which the, 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 the nation does, has a particular jurisdiction where, which they can govern. Um, so would kind of be like our areas of Māori land, I guess, and we have incorporations or trusts um, which govern Māori land in different places. There's oversight from the government in terms of the Māori Land Court uh, or the Māori Trustee or the Ministry of Māori Affairs, <laughs> you know, have all input into the governing of Māori land. Um, so in some ways their reserves are like that, um, except they have greater... Um, powers and governing and certainly the perception about their role in governing I think is is um, more of one that that they're the government on that for that reserve rather than we sort of don't see trusts and incorporations in quite the same way in quite the same Mm. way but perhaps we could be moving towards that yep because then just to make a huge leap that means the whole possibility of having a sovereign nation within a sovereign nation as a possibility. Yeah, well certainly you know, people often point to um, strengthening the economic dimension as the kind of first step in the process of self-reliance. I mean I, I wouldn't want to get too confused about um, 
the kind of an economic tenoranga tiratanga as opposed to a political or constitutional one. But certainly some iwi see um, the strengthening of this economic dimension first as their key kind of um, step on a path towards greater tenoranga tiratanga, greater self-determination. Um, so that's certainly one way of doing it. Okay, so back to some of the other um, projects that the Aboriginal people in British Columbia and Alberta, some of the other projects they were doing. Uh, well, there's a really exciting one um, in British Columbia on Vancouver Island, uh, Vancouver Island, which is just out from Vancouver. Um, the Hoopachesit uh, people, they have their own run-of-river uh, micro-hydro dam. And um, some years ago, you know, there'd been changes in the forestry industry. Um, a gas, a natural gas facility was proposed for their, in their traditional territory, which they were opposed to. Uh, so they started looking around for ways of generating employment for their own people and, um, you know, pursuing kind of more sustainable uh, environmental um, projects. And they came up with this idea of a run of river hydro um, so what it is is they take because they're really into their salmon over there. You know <laughs> they love their salmon, don't yep. want to do anything to the waterways really that's going to hurt their salmon. Um, so the salmon's never been depleted over the years. Oh, it has had it's the same difficulties we have here sure. with um, pollution of waterways and things like that. So yeah, the the health of the river um, and the sort of spiritual connections with water is quite a big thing for this nation. Um, uh, but what they decided to do was this microhydro. So it takes water um, at the headwater, at the kind of peak, if you like, of the of the creek. Um, it's called China Creek is where it's located. Um, and it diverts it a short way um, in a pipe, essentially, out of the stream. Um, and as it goes down the slope, the hill, in this pipe it picks up speed and then whirls around a, a turbine at the bottom and then they put the water straight back into the, the stream. So it's diverted for a short um, sort of way uh, in terms of the river but it's, there's no huge dam, um, there's no flooding of areas, there's none of that kind of thing which is usually associated with a big hydro project. So it's just a micro hydro uh, and that generates electricity which they sell uh, back into the national grid and uh, make money, provide some employment and are looking after, still looking after the waterways and things like that. So, yeah. Easy. Easy. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, I mean, you need the sort of... Part, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly something that more hapu and iwi, I think, here should be looking at. And I know some have investigated it, and you need the right conditions, the right kind of slope, the right kind of, um, you know, stream for this kind of still thing. Still, though, but, when you think of Aotearoa and all those rivers and streams that run through hapu and iwi whenua... You know, it's a possibility. Yeah, it is. Certainly these smaller scale ones as well. Um, in fact, there's a, a guy in, in Taranaki um, who has a company, I think it's called Eco Innovations, where he uses the um, the mixer part of old washing machines mm. for these turbines. And those are certainly, that's the kind of scale that Hapu and Iwi could be looking at for powering uh, maybe their marae or the farikai or something like that. You know, so smaller scale things, but alongside maybe a little mini turbine. You know, these are all kind of options um, that hapu and iwi could get into um, for for generating your own energy. And then any, any energy that you don't use, you can sell back into the national grid. 
um, and so you've got employment and you're generating um, some wealth for the hapu. So quite exciting options. So what about our people that are based in cities? Well, you can have, there's actually some research at Victoria University about um, mini turbines on the tops of roofs. <laughs> um, other options, I guess, in, that are kind of friendly for the environment for in city environments are collecting your own water tanks on the top of roofs or what's becoming quite trendy these days, which is green green roofs, um, so growing vegetables on the tops of um, skyscrapers or big apartment blocks or whatever, having your own built-up gardens up there. Um, there are all those kinds of things, but certainly turbines on the top of buildings seems like a, um, you know, a really good idea in Wellington <laughs> anyway. But there's a whole group of people that oppose the wind turbine technology in Aotearoa. Yeah, one of the difficulties um, probably to date uh, with wind turbines has been where they've suggested they be located. So often that has been on maunga, which might be tapu, or might be, you know, the significant maunga for that hapu. And obviously those are not the right um, locations for turbines and wind farms. Um, however, you know, any kind of generation of energy is has got to have some kind of impact um, which is why we should be reducing our en energy consumption anyway rather than just looking at um, activities to kind of bolster energy production um, but that's a, another issue um, so any kind of energy production is going to have a consequence then so we just have to weigh up really whether the consequences from nuclear power for example uh, or big massive hydro dams, or mini hydro dams, or wind turbines, uh, you know, which of those consequences we're happier to live with. And uh, in my mind, wind turbines then are much easier to live with. And yes, I would be happy to have one next door <laughs> or attached to my house um, because I think it's friendlier on the environment. Uh, again, you, the research has to be done in terms of where they're located. You don't put them in the flight paths of, you know, traditionally migrating birds and things like that um, or uh, some of the offshore turbines the ones that are located in water you know again you wouldn't put them in the path of whales uh, or dolphins you know particular um, kind of tracks where animals and um, birds go um, there are areas you know where they're more, where they're going to be more suitable um, than other places um, one of the interesting projects that they had um, in southern Alberta, the Peacani Nation, it's actually um, uh, been bought out by the um, provincial uh, government, but they had this turbine which they called the Weather Dancer. Um, and so they'd early on in the piece had a bit of opposition to this notion of getting involved in this kind of technology which some had suggested was foreign to their uh, tikanga. Uh, mm. um, but they, no, they the old foreign to the tikanga argument. But they turned that around and said, actually, no, that's not right. This kind, you know, we always used the wind in the old days, and we have these traditions of welcoming um, the fine weather, the summer when it's spring and summer when it comes. So this turbine's going to be called Weather Dancer, and they have a whole tradition around a person who's usually a weather dancer who does a weather dance um, to welcome and bring in the um, the uh, fine weather after surviving winter. And so they 
incorporated it and um, discussed it in kind of ways that were part of their traditions, that brought it into the part of their traditions. And actually, in um, the Cook Islands, uh, they have two wind turbines on Mangaia, one of the other, uh, one of their islands, and the people there have built huts <laughs> where they go and have their lunch beneath these turbines because they see them as a real uh, feature of the mm. island and a, a part of their mm. um, hapu, if you like. Mm. Um, so, you know, it just takes us a, a sort of different way of thinking about it. I know Ngāhiwi Tomwana is often talked about, um, you know, that, that we should think actually think of wind turbines as um, somebody with a taiaha spinning it with got tāwhiri māte. That's me, eh? Yeah, you know, that, so it is actually... It just put an image in my head. It is part, <laughs> you know, it can be mm. part of um, our traditions and the ways in which we've always utilised different resources, wind the sun, the awa, and so on. Over the years, we're always changing, you know, different, incorporating different aspects of um, different cultures and things like that. Um, that's not to say that there aren't uh, dominant um, theories or ways of doing things that impose themselves, but certainly I think this notion of being resilient and constantly um, struggling uh, for greater self-determination as a kind of feature. One of the other um, exciting ones in um, British Columbia are these offshore turbines. Uh, there's a place, again, north of uh, Vancouver, there's an island called Haida Gwaii, and the people are the Haida uh, people. And they've gone into a joint venture with a company there, an energy company, Nikoon Wind Energy, um, to set up offshore uh, wind turbines so there'd be about a hundred uh, in the middle of this uh, bit of ocean and there are a number of ways in which they set them up they have a little platform and they have a anchor point going down to the seabed so you actually need a place in the ocean where it's not too deep um, so for example in the Cook Islands they have investigated this but you know around those <laughs> Cook Islands it's really deep mm. there's no way you can sink a little anchor down to mm. hold your turbine up um, but in Canada, in this area in Haida Gwaii, they have uh, it's reasonably uh, shallow, uh, and so they can plunge uh, an anchor down, have a turbine on top of the water, spins around, um, and catches the wind. Again, that'll be sold back into their national grid, um, and they've had negotiations for uh, years and years. I think since about two thousand and two. Um, with this energy company about how it w would work. And one of the, the interesting things there is that originally the energy company said, oh, we, we don't have, it's not financially viable uh, to have a link back to your island, Haida Gwaii, where most of the Haida people live, um, uh, to provide electricity there. It's not financially viable. So the Haida people said, well, that's mm. not good enough. You know, we, we want power if these are going to be out in our waterways. We want to get some power off them for our own homes. Um, and so uh, after some negotiation, the energy company agreed. Um, so are so, energy companies quite receptive? Uh, well, I think at the end of the day, if they can work out how they can make a profit, and I think that's always going to be their bottom line, um, 
and they want to do that in the easiest way possible. So if it means appeasing some of the uh, local First Nations, then they're going to do that. You know, that's the same whether you're a, a green energy company or a big evil uh, oil company, you know. Um, the, at the end of the day, they, they want to make the profit and they want to, you know, avoid as many obstacles as possible. So the Indigenous peoples that you spoke to, were they feeling feeling heartened by this? Was this really, um, like on an individual level, was it? Were they realising that oh, we've got power here? You know, because for so long, eh, we're always placed in a position where, as Indigenous, we're powerless. We've got no power. The only power that can come our way is via money. Yeah, I, th- I certainly think there are a whole lot of groups that are heartened and excited by these kinds of activities. There's still um, groups that are opposed for you know different reasons. They don't want to go down that track, um, or they're not convinced by the um, the um, kind of environmental assessments or, or whatever it might be. So there's always some disagreements, but I think it is quite inspiring. Um, to be in that kind of position. Um, there are also some uh, activities going on across this, the province of Alberta and British Columbia where Indigenous peoples are still being trampled on. So there's a, a project called the um, Enbridge Gateway Pipeline where they're wanting to put this pipeline from Alberta essentially out to the coast of British Columbia and most of the Indigenous peoples along the way are opposed, <laughs> you know. And so, so there are there's still those kinds of um, struggles and struggles, and occupations taking place against that. Yeah, um, but certainly the exciting um, renewable energy projects, I think, are quite inspiring for people. So, the inspiration that you took from it that you hope to apply here. Uh, well, well, mainly I was hoping to write it up and just. <laughs> send it out to different um, iwi or hapu or, or people that I know who are interested in getting these kinds of things going in their own um, hapu and iwi and so that they can make those kinds of connections um, if they want to and so that they know how these nations did it, where they got funding from. I mean, I know we're in a different country, so you get funding from different places. But most of them... Um, the population of the nation was quite small. Like the Hoopachesit people, they only have about 250 people. This is the one on Vancouver Island. Oh, my God. So they're really little. It's like a they size. They didn't have a, um, a big uh, settlement or anything like that which flooded them with millions of dollars to, to get to kickstart it. They went out and, you know, took loans or... Uh, well, they got good advice, first of all, was the main thing. But they also entered into joint ventures with people and or companies and, and credit unions and eco-trusts where there's funding for renewable energy activities. You know, so just, you know, the, the strategy, I guess, of how to go about it, I think, was something that I wanted to encourage Hapu and Iwi to think about. Yeah, I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. One is the in terms of a project for your own hapu, for either powering your own marae or farekai, you know, that kind of very localised way of thinking about it. Then there's a slightly bigger sort of perspective of uh, powering our hapu, our farekai and so on, and providing some employment for some of our members. That's a slightly bigger kind of project that you'd be undertaking uh, and then kind of spanning out from there. 
Certainly, I know Ngati Kuata was one that was looking at establishing a biodiesel plant, and with the changes that are now being made uh, to the emissions trading scheme and all that kind of thing, that, that I understand that that's all on hold. Um, but th that's probably on a larger scale than something, you know, a couple of solar panels for your farikai or something. You know, so there's different scales um, uh, when it comes to this technology, and certainly. Um, you know, a couple of solar panels for your farikai um, is not that hard to, to do. Or to put a wind turbine on your whare. Or to put a little wind turbine on your whare. And to have a, little, have a little bucket collecting water. Yeah, or that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, collecting your own water, I think, um, is something really uh, important. Because the reality is, is that, would you say that the urgency is becoming, you know, it's becoming more and more urgent that we become more responsible around the way that we use energy? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the planet. <laughs> the survival of the planet seems to me um, should be foremost in our minds these days. Um, without the planet, we're, we're not going to be going too much further down the track for Tinoranga Tiritanga. Kia ora, Maria Barge, nō te arawa, nā te awa iwi. And at our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika, there's a link for the paper Dr Barge wrote about her visit. You're listening to tiahika, Radio National. Ko taiarahia te maina, ko ohine matarua te awa, ko nā tiruno me te whānau pani nā hapū, ko tūhoi te iwi. Ko waitani tēpa tōku inoa. Mahi ana mahi kei tamariki ana. Work energetically while young. What this means to me is that while we've got the energy and the passion and the drive to do what we can now, let's do it. Get out there and give it a go before we get old and start looking after our mokopuna. <laughs> Kia ora. It's us for another week at Tewi. No mai hoki mai anō. We'll be with Ingrid Collins, the director of the Fangara Pakarai Beef 5 Farm. They won the Beef and Sheep Ahufenua Māori Farming Award earlier this year, and Richard Schofield, the farm manager. They'll talk to me about the challenges of running the business. He mihi atu ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, me nga hoa mahi i a wiki i a wiki ngā mihi. Mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa, Māori ora.